coming to you from the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains, Denver, Colorado. It's the Savage Cast, a Savage Worlds podcast brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Savages. Here are your hosts, Chris Savage Mommy Fox and Christopher Savage Bull Landauer. Welcome to Savage Cast, Episode 8, World Building with Ross and Sean. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Savage Mommy Fox. And I'm your other host, Christopher Savage Bull Landauer. So, how's things been going? Oh, not too bad. We're at the end of May. There's some good stuff going on in the Savage Kingdom. Yeah, we got some good news for you guys and some uh, the first of our world building uh, interviews. So, lots of good stuff today. Yeah, got through, uh, got through the season of Rifts. Yeah, that was epic. Uh, I think I think you called it right. I mean, in, in our last time we talked about it, uh, I think your number was between three and four hundred thousand, and they uh, they yeah. got there. So so just a little bit over. So yeah, pretty uh, pretty excited about that. Pretty excited about uh, getting my hands on all the materials. Uh, actually, really pretty excited to uh, possibly run a pickup game at Gen Con and record it for the show. Nice. So. That uh, that should be pretty cool. Yeah, and, and I, I I'm really hopeful for uh, the good, all the good this is going to do for Pinnacle. Uh, I think we're bringing in a lot of new Savage Worlds fans. So for you uh, new people out there who found us through Rifts, welcome, uh, welcome to Savage Worlds. It's an awesome community. Hail Savages! The uh, I think it can only be a good thing going forward is you know bringing new people into the hobby, bringing new people into a system which I think has a lot of merits and a lot of legs on it, and. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 excited for where you know in, in a year or two when we look back on on what the the initial rifts effect has been. I think uh, it'll be interesting to just just see, uh, you know, where we are. And I think it's a lot more good than bad. I, I can't I can't think yeah, of too many bad yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Look at uh, how does it how does Pinnacle grow from this, and you know what comes down the the pipeline, and and what can they do based off of the success of this? Because you know you 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 have the success of this, and it's going to lead to them. You know, probably being able to do even bigger and better things, I would think. Oh yeah, I mean, just the number of other licenses that they can approach or will approach them. Um, hopefully, this will put some money in the bank. Uh, you know, I, you could never tell with Kickstarters. A lot of times, the way they're structured, they might hit a big number, but you don't know what their actual costs are. Like, right, I, and you know, how much they're actually going to see of that. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, you know, I'm glad that 7C and John Wick did so well on that, but I think, you know, a lot of that money, especially for the overseas folks, um, given just, you know, multiple shippings of multiple books in the future where rates might rise, you know, he might not be seeing a profit on a, a good chunk of that money. Um, so hopefully he gets a good profit out of the, the, the stuff that's a little more uh, advantageous. But you know, just just because something pulls in a lot of money doesn't mean it's necessarily structured to be super profitable. And I think Pinnacle's smarter than that. I think they're I think they did the right thing. It, l- it looked like their stretch goals were, you know, smartly conceived. Um, and, you know, and some people had ridiculous demands. Like, there was one guy who was who was posting online that. There should be free shipping if the the, you know, the 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 Kickstarter reaches this many dollars, and yeah, and I, I kind of tried to explain to the guy what marginal cost and you know marginal revenue was about, and uh, you know that the, the, there was that was a, a not even a possibility because the margin on the printing and the production isn't so fantastic in publishing that that you know any given level 
would even be able to pay for the shipping that you know so you got all business I did and the guy was like I don't know about economics I'm just a consumer who wants what a consumer wants and I tried to explain, like, you know, with, with, like, a Bones or other kind of Kickstarters where all the costs are up front, you know, you, you got to make the models, make the molds, but then actually reproducing the 10th, 11th, 500th, 10,000th one is actually very cheap. It's, it's the software model. Like, software, right. you pay everything up front, and then reproducing it is almost negligible. You can do that with software. You can start doing stuff where if your margin on a $100 product is $85, you know, $85 profit, you can start saying, yeah, we'll give you $10 free shipping. But if your margin on an entire you know, uh, RPG Kickstarter is $5 for a $50 product, you can't afford to give people $5 of free stuff on top of that because there goes all your profit. And, you know, a lot of people don't, don't, don't appreciate that, and, and certainly this guy didn't. Um, I'm like, you know, I'm sure that Pinnacle cannot afford to give everybody free shipping just because they have so many, you know, so much backing. Right. Because they're getting the yeah. backing by having more people. There's just so many people who signed on to that. And uh, shout out to Denver, number one in the world, uh, backers of that product. So uh, we've got, I think we'll have more Denver uh, Savage Rifts GMs than anywhere else in the world. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, like I said, I'm I'm pretty excited to to see what happens with it. So let's uh talk about we've got some news and some product uh, information from the Savage Sphere out there that we wanted to kind of talk about. Uh, first off, uh, we have to say farewell to the Savage Bloggers Network podcast. The guys are saying goodbye after 41 episodes. Uh, Christian and and Ron uh, are moving on. Christian is moving on for some good reasons. I guess he's got a new uh, job and some things that are going to take away his time. Uh, so they're they're just going to go ahead and uh, hang it up after 41 episodes. So, uh, Yeah, I, those guys are I, definitely welcome on here whenever they want. I, I'm sure they, they still want to scratch that itch. Uh, it probably sounds like more like a matter of uh, you know, having the time and the effort to do the editing and, and the organization. So, uh, you know, we won't allow those two guys to, to go off into the the good night. Um, we'll keep them around. We'll also, uh, Ron and um, and Christian, whenever you guys want, you know, give us a ring. We'll have you guys on. And uh, But I think the, the uh, yeoman's work you guys have already done on the SBN podcast deserves a, a hearty round of applause and a hail, savages. All hail, Nice. And uh, another podcast uh, bit of information is uh, the guys over at Fear the Boot. Ten years of podcasting, and they are now over 400 episodes of RPG goodness over there. Wow, 40 episodes a year. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, they uh, they put out a, a lot. And ten years, you know, they say a lot of podcasts, if they get past 20 episodes, they've done a really good job. And so to have over 400 episodes in 10 years of, of just general RPG information is, is just amazing. Uh, those are actually uh, Fear the Boot and The Game's a Thing are the first two places I actually heard about Savage Worlds. Uh, so if it weren't for both of those podcasts, uh, there would be no Savage Mommy and I may not be playing Savage Worlds dread the thought so yeah yeah so it's awesome congratulations guys on the big milestone and 
you know, yeah, uh, here's to 10 more years. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, again, more Savage Worlds content. Because that, that's, you know, the, the only thing we yeah. can really ask yeah, for. Yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. We, want, we want you to talk about Savage Worlds. Yeah, forget those other systems. They, you know, they're not important. Savage Worlds is where it's at. And the last one, podcast-wise, is uh, Savage Cast and the Wild Die podcast are going to be doing a crossover. Uh, we're going to get together with Jamie and I think probably Eric Lemerau. I probably just screwed up his name, but uh, the guys at Wild Die, we're going to get together with them, and we're going to do a listener Q&A with those guys. We're going to record it, I think, on June 10th, so you have up until June 10th to get your questions in to uproar at savagecast.com, G+, Facebook, Twitter. Get those questions to us. What questions do you want us to answer about Savage Worlds? So that'll be pretty exciting. Uh, they're a fun crew. Wild Die is a really great podcast. Uh, they also have The Gathering of Dorks, which is a, ge- a general podcast where they all sit around, get drunk, and talk about role-playing and argue with each other. Nice. So uh, we're looking forward to that. So uh, we'd love if you have questions, get those into us so that we have uh, some things that we can talk about on that show. Excellent. Yes, and the next thing is the... Uh... I'm actually now helping out the Savage Mommy on a secret project. And uh, all I can say about that is ahoy, matey. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, work is uh, uh, pushing forward. We're sailing right along on the project and uh, hope to have uh, some more news later. Uh, maybe uh, towards the end of the year, we'll have a little bit more information on that. But. Uh, uh, we'll talk about it on the show uh, when we feel like it's it's at an appropriate point where we can give more information. But uh, yeah, there just know there's something out there coming from myself, the Savage Bull, and uh, I will call him King Brett, a good buddy of mine who who's doing the yeoman's work on this thing. So it's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, very cool. And thanks for um, for bringing me aboard. The um, next bit of news is, remember guys, Carl Kiesler is our guest for Tacticon. You guys can actually register now uh, for the convention, get your badges. Uh, you, you do need some stinking badges. Uh, Carl's coming out, and uh, if you don't know Carl, he's the guy, the genius behind uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 1980s, which was an epic game that uh, Chris played in and brought back to Colorado, and I got to play in uh, his game. And uh, the sequel... Uh, sequel prequel because it's the 1970s League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Women and uh, he's also promised to run a couple new events for us Goonies meets the Ghostbusters which is just sounds awesome I I just need to play in that game I haven't decided who I want to play yet whether I want to be like Chunk um, which might be awesome Uh, (laughs) you have to do the truffle shuffle oh yeah yeah. if anyone has seen my strike parrot uh, dance from the last convention. It's up on the Rocky Mountain Savages website. Um, I, I'm I'm not above getting up and doing a little dancing to to bring a character to life. And uh, Carl's also going to bring uh, his Mystery Men um, game to Tacticon. So he, he's 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 doing a full schedule for us. So if you want to play in his games, I tried to get into both of those games at Gen Con, and of course they both sold out. Uh, so fast so uh, I've already talked to Carl and said uh, that he needs to uh, save me a seat in one of those games at Tacticon my plan is uh, to pick one of those two uh, either Mr. Men or Goonies meets the Ghostbusters and uh, actually record one of his sessions from Gen Con uh, I don't know 
I want to get it recorded. The problem with Gen Con is that a lot of the role playing is all in one yeah, room. Yeah, the noise might be an issue. And or there there are three or four tables per room. So I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna try to record it. We've kind of already set something up, and we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, won't guarantee that that'll be put out as an actual play because if we can't get good enough sound quality and you can't hear what's going on, I don't want to put it out. But if nothing else, we'll record some stuff with Carl at Tacticon. We'll have a panel uh, that we'll record for an episode of the show, and we'll try to get one of his games there recorded uh, for sure. And I think we're even looking at... I'm the RPG coordinator for Tacticon, and word is we might have one or more Twitch casting stations available. So some of those games might even go out live, which will be cool. That would be awesome. Yeah, we'll let you know if we manage to pull that off. And um, for anyone who's coming into town, if you guys or our local GMs, um, you can submit your games to us. We're actually taking games now at RockyMountainSavages.com. It's right on there on the front page. And the first 10 GMs, we already have two in, two of, two of my favorite GMs, have already submitted games. Uh, it's open now. The first 10 GMs will actually be put into a drawing for tickets to Turok, which is James Cameron's, the guy behind Avatar. Uh, they basically took Avatar and turned it into like a Cirque du Soleil spectacular. And um, since the Savage cast is awesome, and apparently our market is the perfect market that the Turok people want to get to, um, or the Rocky Mountain Savages are as well, uh, they came to us and were like, can we give you tickets? And we're like, sure, as long as we can give them away. So anyone who's running games can uh, get in the, the, the raffle to see that on opening night. And... Um, it's fitting that uh, our Tacticon theme is superheroes. So if you have a preference in games and you're leading towards doing supers, um, we'll be doing some superhero giveaways at Savage Saturday Night, and uh, that's our official theme for Tacticon. And along with that, conveniently, and we'll have to get this episode out really fast because there's only like five days left, but the drive through RPG folks have a 25% off sale on a bunch of Savage World superhero products. So the Superpowers Companion is on sale. Um, the Sci-Fi Companion is also on sale, so pick that up as, as you, when, you're, when you're there. Um, Necessary Evil 2 Breakout uh, campaign is on sale. Uh, very cool um, Peacekeepers um, setting. And this is a favorite. Um, Arcal, a local GM, runs this with aplomb. The Kerberos Club is on sale. Yeah, I love his Kerberos Club games. They're always so much fun. Yes. So if you're coming out, besides hitting up Carl, you guys definitely hit up um, Arcal's Kerberos Club's game because uh, they are a lot of fun. So if you are looking to pick up some superpower stuff to run at Tacticon, it's on sale. Um, hit up the links on our blog post and we'll get some kickback. I, I think the... I, I looked at the account today and we have a dollar uh, and seven cents of wonderful kickback goodness. Woo-hoo! So we Man, we are kicking Oh, yeah, ass. we are rolling in the dough. So thank you, Savage We're going to be rich very we soon. Yes, yeah, so we're going to give up our day jobs and, and do podcasting full-time. So, yeah, so, Chris, why don't you tell us about other cool things that you guys are new, fresh, exciting um, in the Kickstarter and or actually not even in the Kickstarter, but more in the products available on the market now. What, what else is up, up for us? Yeah, so um, if you missed uh, Weird War 1, uh, missed that Kickstarter. They've just released Shane's adventure called The 13th Warrior. Uh, it was one of the stretch goals, and you can buy it uh, right now from the Pinnacle Web Store. Uh, you can also soon be able to get that on a drive through RPG. I think it's $4.99. It's, again, uh, it says, Join the airmen of the British 13th Squadron as they take flight to the skies of Europe. 
Stand Against German Pilots, Social Rivals, Dark Sorcery, and a Titanic Hunter Beyond Your Wildest Nightmares. I was a little disappointed that it didn't involve Antonio Banderas um, and a Michael Crichton story. But the fact that it's got dogfights in it, it kind of makes up for that. So yeah, and I, you know, that's uh, the dogfight rules are are something I've never used. So I'd be really curious to see uh, how those work. I didn't actually back Weird War One, uh, so um, probably not going to pick this up anytime soon. But you know, if if anybody picks it up and and runs it, let us know how those dogfight rules. Oh work. man, I've got I've got my sop with camel ready to go. I there was a a cool sale at like Hobby Lobby a couple months ago and they, they, they had like two eh, I wouldn't call them perfectly sized but they're within reason um, for you know the 28 millimeter size um, World War One planes and so I picked up a couple of those and I figured well uh, you know, I'll get around to using one you know, sooner or later so I think I might actually go in on this because I've got the planes to do it yeah yeah go for it yeah and for five five bucks for the for the adventure well worth it and then, like i said written by shane so you know it's going to be it's going to be a good adventure uh and there's a couple new uh octoon cthulhu products out there the shadows of atlantis campaign and the keeper's guide yeah and i know you said chris you're playing in an octoon cthulhu oh, local GM. game right now so love it if people haven't heard of it just real briefly real quick what Give us like the elevator pitch for Octoon Cthulhu. What is it? It's basically the 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 Nazis are raising the old gods to give them an advantage to win the war against the Allies. So it's got all of the real world bizarro Nazi occultism meets the Cthulhu mythos, and um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we've been playing for a couple months. Uh, Neil Hyde's running a campaign. And uh, I'm actually playing a, a, a German spy in the campaign. And uh, I don't think the rest of the groups figure this out yet. And uh, telling them on the podcast is probably a bad idea. Spoiler. Yeah, spoiler. Um, but I, I think it might be interesting to get the, the, the rest of the group, you know, aware of this or how they want to react to it. Because it's, it's, it's been going on for so long and I really haven't had to compromise myself yet all, all that badly. Um, but so my my guy is not a he's not a Nazi. He's actually kind of a German patriot who thinks that the 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 Nazis are crazy. Um, but he wants to see that you know the country survives the war and isn't you know demolished by you know the Allies having to completely obliterate the entire country because they are raising you know. The, all these horrors, and he's kind of against all the horrors as well. I mean, you know, it's again, it's it's, it's kind of like what what do you do if you're a patriot and your country goes off the rails, you know, uh, with fascism and raising the old gods, you know? Right. What kind of choices do you have to make? What what do you you know that that would be something interesting to play because yeah. you you have to make those tough choices. So exactly. So that's kind of what my character's doing, and I think again, I'm playing with smart people, and and they've kind of noticed that certain parts of my character sheet have like sticky notes over them. Um, you know, <laughs> like, you know, hindrances and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, uh, so yeah, that's fun. And that hasn't come to a head yet, but I think it might. And so I'm kind of, hopefully if they're listening, they'll, they'll, they'll do a little, uh, out of character determination that they want to, they want to probe that little pit. And, um, I think we're meeting again this weekend. So it should be, uh, it's a really fun world. Um, it's got all of the funness of the mythos with the, fast-paced excellence of Savage Worlds. So, if you want to punch Nazis in the face... Yes, and go insane... Shoot Nazis. 
shoot Nazis, possibly go insane because the other gods are, are being summoned. Octoon Cthulhu sounds like it may be the game for you. Yes, and I think that Keeper's Guide that's on sale has both the uh, Call of Cthulhu rules, if you're an old-time Cthulhu person, and the Savage Worlds in Savage Worlds rules in one book. So, oh, very nice. You can do both. So the the next thing is is not something Savage Worlds, but it's something that came into my inbox today that I thought was cool nonetheless. Uh, there's a Kickstarter out there for a product called Anvil. It's the true user friendly 3D printer for everyone. Uh, it's a $299 3D printer that has been kickstarted by a group of, of guys up in Wisconsin. Uh, the video is very cool. Uh, it makes it look like it is something that's simple to use. Uh, they use a, a web app or, or like an iPad app that you can go on. You create all of your rendering and everything for whatever object you want on that iPad app. And then you just send that to the printer. Uh, they show a mom and a son, they're cooking and can't find a measuring spoon, so they 3D print themselves a measuring spoon. Cool. Um, and, you know, and, and little robots. And, you know, I've been very interested in 3D printing, but the price point, you know, thousands of dollars for a printer, and I've never heard anyone tell me that they're user-friendly. Just the, the, the possibilities out there with those really intrigued me for making terrain, 3D dungeon terrain. I, I just, I find that very interesting. Minis, you know, there's companies out there doing minis, um, but I'm sure that if you've got the files, you could do the minis yourself. So it was something interesting to me. It ends on Thursday, June 9th. So we'll get this show out before then. So go, uh, if you're interested in a 3D printer, go give Anvil a check. Yeah, that's a, it's a cool technology and it's almost... I think it'll only get better from here in the sense that the more people that use them for the RPG hobby, I think that the traditional publishers of, of terrain and miniatures will have to up their game. And just kind of the more quick, kind of cool stuff other people are going to create for you. So I, I think we're you know, there's kind of a, a, a big popular viral share of a guy who went through and did the entire Monsters Manual for D&D. Um, with 3D models. And uh, again, I, I don't think the quality is there yet at that scale where you could say, oh, it's better than Pewter or better than a Warhammer kind of thing. Right. But it's sure. so close where it's, I think for, for larger, where the price point gets awful for miniatures, where you have like big bigger monsters um, that, you know, do I really want to pay $100 for a really cool looking miniature? Maybe not, you know. I think at that right scale where the, the 3D printing still looks really good to the eye um, and there are files out there and it looks good on that scale, I think that might be a kind of a cool place where it goes, where you know, it'll be most applicable. The, I want to have super fine detail on the eyes and the eyelashes and the, you know, the, 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 the right, spell sure. book. Yeah, totally not yeah, there Yeah, I don't yet think it's quite that. there yet, but it, it will be... As more people buy into the technology, that people see a market for it and the higher resolutions, 
Uh, but you know, for you know, three hundred dollars, that's that's not breaking the breaking the bank for not at all. You know, especially if you're going to do terrain. Oh my god, terrain is so expensive. So if you were going to do something like you know the the dwarf forge, dwarven forge tiles, I mean, you can spend three hundred dollars on one set of those. Exactly. Yeah. And and 3D printed, 3D printing does those just as well, and a lot of times better. I mean, some of the 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 the, the, the dungeon technology is like the casting in, in plaster. That stuff gets heavy and expensive and messy. And even with the problems with 3D printing, uh, if you were to go like, hey, I'm gonna go buy into a couple molds which cost you know 30 or 40, 50 bucks a piece. And the time and equipment to do it, um, for and build it versus oh, it's gonna get expensive. Yeah, they can get really expensive. So spending three hundred bucks, and there's already kind of a, a good number of robust dungeon tile kind of things out there already. Um, let alone things you can make yourself. Uh, yeah, for terrain wise, I think three D printing is really awesome. So yeah, I would have backed it if I hadn't spent so much money on on riffs. I probably would have backed it, but uh, I'm hoping that once the Kickstarter's out there. I'm, and and they they're already funded. Once it's over, I'm hoping that it's a company that that keeps this price point, and you know you can order them from their website going forward. Because uh, at some point, I'd like to get my hands on one of those. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And uh, again, there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in our hobby now. I think you know a lot of good companies are still thriving even in the face of digital printing. Um, that was, you know, supposed to kill all the publishing industry. It's not dead yet, and I think a lot of companies are doing really well with it. Um, the miniatures have gotten better. Terrain is getting better. It's the options out there. Um, the hobby is growing. It's more inclusive and diverse. So it's kind of a good time to be alive if you are a fan of the RPG hobby. So it is. It is. And speaking of being a fan of the RPG hobby, I'm actually going to Gen Con this year. Uh, I will be at Gen Con. Uh, for Savage Cast, I, I'm going uh, as press for uh, Savage Cast this year, and I'm looking for people to interview. I'd like to interview publishers, but I'd also like to interview Savages, Savage Worlds fans. Uh, just kind of a little five-minute man-on-the-street interview. What's your favorite setting? What's your favorite rule? Why? What? How do you come to Savage Worlds? Those types of things. So. If you're interested and you'd like to meet with me at Gen Con, I posted a thread to the Pinnacle Forums under their Con Forums. I also put out on Facebook, the, the official Savage World site, Facebook site, and on the, the official G Plus uh, site that I wanted to do interviews. So go there, let me know, we'll figure something out, and I would love to get your thoughts and get them put on the show. Excellent. Yeah. The, uh, so hopefully we'll have to have a little like where's Beldar app where you can like find where Chris Fox is wandering around. Yeah. yeah. Come and come and uh, fi find your mommy. <laughs> where's your mommy? Yeah. Nice. Where's your mommy? Yeah. The where's your mommy app. Love it. So yeah, I mean, I'm going to also, I've got uh, a few people uh, gave me some names of some folks that I'm going to, uh, get in touch with and I have three people who already said that they would sit down with me so I've got some stuff out there but I really I want some fans I'm really kind of excited to get some fans just to kind of bullshit about Savage Worlds for a few minutes I think that'll be a lot of fun and kind of cool to get different perspectives from people 
Yeah, the second the second best thing to actually playing Savage Worlds is sitting around talking about it. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, and speaking of sitting around and talking about Savage Worlds, after a brief musical interlude, we will present to you our first in what hopefully will be many world building interviews. This time around, we sat down with Ross Watson and Sean Patrick Fannin, and I got through about half our questions. Uh, on um, you know what what settings they've built, their philosophy behind world building, uh, mechanics, and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So, yeah, so it's basically kind of setting slash world building, kind of all encompassing. Yeah, it's good stuff, and it's, it's the kind of stuff that it's you know. I think it's interesting for not only one of the reasons Savage Worlds is a great system because there are so many worlds, but beyond just setting specific or rule specific, kind of the stuff that I don't hear asked a lot, you know, and I think it is interesting to us as aspiring setting creators, as well as players kind of getting kind of the, the academic approach behind the settings we play in and why they play the way they do, why they look the way they do, um, how you bring setting flavor into those settings so uh hopefully you guys will enjoy our interview and if there are any other questions you guys want us to ask during our world builder interviews again hit us up at uproar at savagecast.com and uh, we'll add your questions to our list of inquiries for the hopefully many authors and setting creators and world builders um that we will interview in the future so uh enjoy the interview with ross watson and sean patrick fanning We're here today with Ross Watson and Sean Patrick Fannin, the two Illuminati geniuses behind Evil Beagle Games. And I'm going to quiz them on uh, their ideas behind world building. All right. Hey, guys. Hi, everybody. Thanks for uh, letting us on the show here, Chris. So let's start with Ross. Ross, what worlds or settings have you been behind? I've been involved with an awful lot of settings. I built my own setting for Savage Worlds, which is called The Cursed. It's uh, Hellboy meets Solomon Kane. Uh, you guys can go find it out there if you want to play. Monsters fighting witches have taken over the world. It's sort of a dark fantasy setting. I've been involved with a lot of official pinnacle settings like Weird War One, uh, Last Parsec, Lankamar. And, of course, I've worked on a lot of licensed settings, The Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Warhammer 40,000, just to name a few. Wow, so you've been all over the place. That'll be interesting. We'll, we'll probably dive into the difference between your own homegrown stuff and contributing to stuff that's already existing. So. Sure. And uh, Sean, as if we didn't know, what worlds uh, have you built and contributed to? Well, I think I'm probably most well known for being the creator of the Shintar Epic High Fantasy setting. Um, and uh, like Ross, I've had a chance to work with a bunch of different worlds. You know, um, I uh, was involved in a great deal of what was going to be some serious world building for the Champions role-playing game. And uh, taking what we'd already started to craft with the Champions Universe stuff during 4th edition and kind of do a big, epic, crisis-style reboot and then build from the ground up uh, and, and turn that into a, an established world. And, of course, you know, uh, I've had a chance to play in a lot of different worlds, including most recently the... Savage Rifts! Yeah, yeah the, 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 the Earth of Rifts. Yeah, we, uh, we definitely have been doing a lot of work with that. Or Rifts Earth. Rift's Earth, yes. So, and I'm kind of know that you guys are both working on another um, setting that's coming out later this year, possibly Kickstarter. Yeah, um, that's actually an issue point because um, the stuff that I was doing for what was going to be the big reboot and kind of recrafting a supers universe, 
you know, they all went, they, you know, went, once you had the 5th and 6th edition champions and then, uh, you know, the, the computer game and all that, they pretty much just went a completely different direction. So I'm taking all of that stuff, uh, and Ross is definitely helping with this, uh, to create the Modern Gods superhero setting, uh, which will be primarily, uh, at this point, we're focusing on the Prowls and Paragons uh, rule set, which we're going to be doing in the Ultimate Edition along with Len Pimentel. In fact, just we're kind of marrying the release of Modern Gods with uh, the, the Prowls and Paragons Ultimate Edition book. Um, and then I've got, uh, there's the Modern God setting, and then there's some parallel settings that kind of, kind of create its own multiverse thing going on there. And uh, for that matter, I know Ross has got some stuff in the can for some world building he wants to do, too. So, And uh, don't forget Primeval Thule, which we brought over to Savage Worlds just a yeah. few months ago, actually. Award-winning setting from the Sasquatch Game Studio guys. Yeah. So we're, 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 we've got a lot of experience both creating worlds and messing around with other people's worlds. So... Excellent. So either one of you guys, pick one of the settings you created from scratch out of your head, and what was the idea or spark, thought, or question that inspired that set? You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Actually, uh, there were a number of sparks that all came together to form a cursed, and one of them was actually a game at Genghis Khan here in Colorado with Clint Black. And he was running a Weird War II game where we were all playing universal monsters behind the lines in Nazi Germany. There was a werewolf, there was Frankenstein's monster, there was a vampire, etc. And it was an awful lot of fun, but he started getting me thinking about games where you play the monsters, and very classic monsters at that, uh, which tied into my love of the old DC Comics series, uh, The Creature Commandos. And I started playing around with this idea of, like, let's play monsters... And uh, that's where Accursed was born, was, was me thinking, like, what if I could take the, the, the idea of playing monsters and, and, and doing something with that, and then marry it to some really cool atmospheric elements like Castlevania, right, which is the, kind of the inspiration for the setting of Accursed, uh, the world of Morden. Um, so that's really where that came from, was uh, taking chocolate and peanut butter, mashing them together, four Reese's Pieces, and that's how that came out. Delicious. Yeah. Well, with Shintar... Um, is a story has been told a few times and it, 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 it is the true story um, as a kid I acquired that you know early box set that said Dungeons and Dragons I think it was the first one where they were still calling they actually started calling it a role playing game and it had the powder blue book inside that had the same cover uh, and it had the adventure Keep on the Borderlands and this is 1977 Cobb County, Georgia I didn't know anybody who was playing so I had to teach myself how to be a dungeon master through just what I was reading in these books and this one games magazine article I'd read in the school library that at first got me, you know, wow, this is this is a thing. And uh, of course, Tolkien fan, you know, big you know fantasy books fan, and, and just the concept of the epic and all that. So I was immediately interested in the world that this keep on this borderland inhabited, and I didn't have a strong sense of what that world was. And, of course, back then, it, it, it didn't matter as much. You have a place. You can hang out and buy stuff, and then you go kill the monsters in the dungeon, and that's what the game's about. Except, it wasn't about that for me. I wanted more. Um, I wanted to know the politics behind, you know, why these factions are, are dealing with each other, and what, what you know, there's, there's the borderland. Well, what borders, what, what's on the borders? I mean, what are these lands that are bordering? And that's really where Shintar began, is I, I had this keep, and I, I wanted land, so I started kind of crafting a world around it. And I mean, it's not like I started immediately. I'm, on, I'm what, uh, 11, I think, at this point? 10 or 11 years old, so I'm kind of making this up as I go, but trying to take the inspiration from the Masters, uh, you know, looking at what Tolkien did to build his world, looking at what others did to build their worlds, I started coming up with ideas. Now, a lot of those ideas were silly and cheesy as a 
10 or 11 year old kid might come up with, but some stuff kind of bubbled to the surface, and I would keep the pieces I really liked, and then the next time I was going along, I'd say, well, I'm going to I'm going to take this idea and expand it out a bit further. Uh, you know, re- redo the world, redo a new map, start crafting the world, start thinking about the bigger cosmological issues because I wanted my world to have certain rules. I wanted magic to work in a way that made sense to me. I wanted, you know, the politics to, to make sense. So really it was this ongoing craft of decades <laughs> to build this world. And as I became a, a game designer uh, and I learned so much over those years, I would reapply those lessons so that when I finally got around to actually doing Shintar as an officially published product, I was able to take all the things I had come up with that I thought were really cool ideas and then apply all the techniques and ideas and concepts of world building since then to craft what has turned into be, by a lot of people's account, a pretty deep, pretty immersive uh, fantasy world that, yes, feels like a, a fantasy world that you'd want to play in, but it has its own unique characters its own unique feel, uh, its own face. And uh, so there's, that's how that started. So before, obviously, you know, you, you, all these years of designing, you, you create this big, rich world, almost a universe in some cases, where people can be any number of things. But in that initial book, um, how important is it to have to give the, the first buy-in buyers of your system um, a task, like... Who were the PCs? What were they supposed to be? And what were they supposed to do? And and gonna, how important is that to to pitch your setting, even though it doesn't have to be where it ends up twenty years from now or two campaigns? From as, now. as Ross loves to ask, what's the question you always ask? You know, uh, what are what are you what are you doing? You know, what what are we supposed to do with this? And that's uh, Robin Laws likes to call it the core activity. And I think it is. It, it, there, there's no one true way to design role playing games. I'm not. I'm not going to say that there's only one way. Uh, but what works for me and what I think works for most games is to have your setting include a core activity in it. It's context for the players to be able to say, I know who I am, what I'm doing, and why. And it really helps to have that so that we're all together on the same page before we get into the action of the role play itself. Because I think a lot of games that don't have this, uh, a lot of settings that don't have this particular uh, aspect to them, you can end up wasting a lot of time sitting around the table saying, okay, I guess we're all in a tavern and an old man mm-hmm. comes up to us with a contract to kill a dragon. I guess. What, what is your game about? You, you, I've, I've watched this conversation, I've studied this conversation, I've learned from this conversation, and uh, I consider it vital to how I approach things and how I instruct others. I know Ross and I both get asked frequently when they're, you know, hey, I'm going to do this Kickstarter, I want to make this game. And first thing, you know, that, that Ross asks, and I've learned to ask too, is, well, what is your game about? And they start going, well, you can be these things, and there's all these stuff going on. I was like, no, 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 no. What is the game about? You know, you know, who are, you know, who are the characters? What is their purpose? You know, what is the core conflict? Yes, you know, that's, are... that's super important. Can I jump on that really quick? Yeah, yeah. It's really important to have some kind of compelling conflict in a game world. Okay, like, if it's for fiction, you know, if you want a world built for fiction, you can do whatever you want with it. But if you're going to try and, and get people in, engaged in it in a social environment like the role-playing game, they have to have an idea of, like, what happens if I just sit at home and do nothing? Does the evil empire win? Okay, then, that, then, I'm gonna, then, then I know why I'm out adventuring. You know, there's a reason for me to be out there. So having some kind of compelling conflict is really at the heart of a good setting. Mm-hmm. And all your world building is for naught if it's just, you know, well, you guys are tourists and maybe there's some monsters that you can, like, murder hobo. Uh, yeah, whatever, we've done that. So if you want to successfully bring a, a, a world, right, because the focus here is world building, right? I mean, we talk about building a game from scratch, but in this case, we're, say we want to build a world for an existing game system. You, you want even, even if you just want to do a series of cool adventures, 
if the adventures are not set in an established world, then you are effectively building a world for just those adventures. And whatever you're doing, like like Ross says, why are they together? Why is your character compelled to do anything? If you can't really answer those questions, you need to take a couple of steps back and re-examine. Plus, it's just a good shorthand. Like, if, if I was going to ask somebody about their game and they were able to tell me, my game is about X doing Y despite Z, that's great. I get that. But if you have to spend a couple of hours telling me what it's about, uh, how are the players going to relate to that? Right. That was that, 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 that was that formula. I keep trying to remember. You know, X. Yeah, the basic the basic formula for core activity is heroes do X uh, despite Y, or uh, sorry, the, the heroes doing X. I forget it. You know what? I'll, I'll, I you just said it. I know. I, like, oh I just it's now out of my head. But no, I did. I did you, just say. Well, it. you are X doing Y despite, despite Z. Z. Yeah. Thank, so you. thank you. What what kind of characters are you? What are you doing? And you know, despite what conflict? Yeah. So, for example, rifts. Yes, Twenty six years of publishing history. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and you can easily answer those questions with rifts. But it left people kind of going, "Where? How do we get around to that? You know, how do I take this guy? You know, he's a good glitter boy. And how do I take my Leyline Walker and whatever?" I mean, people ask us about this Tomorrow Legion thing, and and that's why we we said, "Okay, you you, you are the Tomorrow Legion." You are trying to make the world a better place in spite of all these, you know, in, well, there it is, you know, trying to make the world a better place in spite of the Coalition and the Federation and all these opponents out there. You can throw that completely out the window and do anything you want. You can be mercenaries, murder hobos, whatever, you know, play your risk your way. But we thought that it was a powerful thing to do with this take on Rifts to create that adventuring paradigm, to create that core conflict, and to create that foundation so that, yes, players could step right up grab those one sheets, grab those archetypes, grab the core book, and just dive right in. And then they can go off any direction they want. But that gateway is incredibly important, especially with the gaming culture we have now, which is everybody just has a certain amount of time. They don't want to spend hours figuring out why they're doing anything. So what's a good example from, uh, Ross, one of your settings, uh, whether it's cursed or otherwise, of the core concept, the core conflict? The core conflict is is very good. Uh, sorry, that didn't, mean, didn't that didn't come out right. The core conflict, I think, uh, is very clear in Accursed. Uh, it is the witches are trying to snuff out all opposition. They are cementing their hold on Morden. So if you sit at home and do nothing, uh, lots of innocent people are going to suffer because the witches will rule with their cruel iron hand just like they have uh, in, in the rest of the world. So uh, the core conflict in, in Accursed is you know, how can we, as monsters use the powers that the curses has given us to fight these witches and free the people who are under the yoke of the witches' conquest. Fantastic. Right. And in Shintar, you had the cosmological axis. You had light, life, darkness, and flame. And yet all the political and other factions driven by those cosmological forces, you, know, you had people actively worshipping and serving demon lords who would like to create chaos and destruction and their own dominance. You had people serving the the, the Necrolords and in darkness to bring corruption and to change the world into a realm that is driven by darkness instead of life. And then you had those who, who served life and the idea of, of, of the benevolent forces of existence and you had light, which was law, you want, we want law, we want justice, we want people to be protected. I mean, those weren't the only, I mean, you could be a person who didn't necessarily revere any of that, but you were still going to get caught up in those grander conflicts because they're the things moving all the giant big pieces on the board and you had to make a decision, you know, am I going to stand by and watch these evil forces, you know, take over the world? And then, of course, we introduced other conflicts, which was the, the Scions and the Starfather and everything else. But the point being, if you stayed home and did nothing, you better hope somebody out there was standing up for you, or else you were going to get swept up in somebody's pawn or slave or worse. So, there you go. 
how have you guys chosen to strike the balance between mission or task oriented and sandbox open world? Well, I'm I'm not a sandbox guy. I really not. That doesn't mean I don't like the idea of, of creating a place where someone feels like they could sandbox. I mean, you know, people have said, well, Shantar is just so big and there's so much going on, you know, and, and I, I would like to say, you know, Savage Mojo and Darren Pierce and those guys are continuing, you know, in that tradition in a beautiful way. And, you know, Corinne, who's, who's here with us uh, doing some stuff, she's still riding herd on that. So it's like we're still connected. But, you know, that I, I know people feel that's a world that they could just sandbox in. But to be clear and be honest, that's not how I approach anything. I, I'm not a sandbox guy. I feel it's important to provide that foundation, provide those adventures, pro- provide that direction, and to give you a reason you know, for me, gaming is your get to exist in a, a, a an action adventure, epic sweeping movie, or maybe a good comic book, or maybe a great television series. And in that, you know, there is a plot line. You know, that doesn't mean you have to be grabbing the nose and you're, you're on the railroad. I, I completely concur on that. That it should be wide open for people to feel like they have uh, the, the choices to make and meaningful choices. Is that? Uh, yes, I'm ripping off your phrase again. Ross teaches me to, to, has taught me so much about how to talk about this stuff. I've got to give credit where it's due. Having meaningful choices to make, but giving them those choices to make, I still think is an important part. So I am not a sandbox guy. I'll fully say that. Well, I designed the game Rogue Trader, and if you had to describe Rogue Trader like what it's about in one word, Rogue Trader is about freedom. Rogue Trader is very much a sandbox game, and it is designed in such a way that you, as the players of the the, the road trader and his council that runs you know his operations it is designed in such a way that to encourage you to choose what you want to do there's a from the world building aspect the way that we design the setting for uh, road trader uh, we wanted exploration part of freedom and part of that sandbox was that there was a lot of white space out there a lot of like we're not really sure what's out here so the design aspect of that setting which is called the the uh, Coronas expanse was the idea of a very bright hallway and you're opening a room opening a door to a dark room okay and what you can see right in front of that door is still you know you can see it, it's kind of dim but the further out you get from that door the darker and the more murky it gets so when we design the, the current expanse there's a doorway into it which is called the the passage and things around the passage are very well defined but the further out from the passage it became more and more here be dragons which opened up a lot of that world-building uh, aspect to allow people to go out and explore and decide what lay out there and decide how they were going to, to deal with that. Um, funnily enough, you, I, I think that uh, sandboxing, it, it's, it's not as cut and dried between like a, a standard type of a, a, a approach for a campaign as, as you might think. For example, I'm running a D&D 5th edition game of Birthright. It's set in a Birthright setting. And... I will tell Sean right now, it is totally sandbox. I let them decide what they want to do. <laughs> but we don't approach it as sandbox because you have given us core conflicts. You have given sure. us meaningful choices. Well, that's the setting has a core conflict, and you've gotten involved in that core conflict. But that doesn't mean that... Um, you, I feel it is a very it is a sandboxy game because you, as oh. the players, make your choices as to where you want We're to go. We're constantly struggling with which... Horrible, evil thing we're going to deal with next, and there's not <laughs> arguments about that. But the thing is that you know, and and, and really, the mixture approach is is, is the way to go. As I me, me kind of taking a definitive, I'm not a sandbox guy, and as a player, I don't want to be a sandbox guy. Ross is kind of teaching me how to handle it decently well, but I'm still I'm playing a paladin, so I can still go. That's the most tactical and most you know good thing we can do. So go there and do that. 
Um, what's funny, though, and that's, that's Corinne laughing in the background because we've had so many interesting conversations in the game. It's one of the best games ever, by the way. Uh, you get roster run birthright for you. You're in it for a treat. Um, you're here. Thank you. Uh, the, um, it's funny because I'm kind of tackling a sandbox-ish thing in my future. Modern Gods, as a superhero setting, it is going to be more sandbox than other things I've done because it is a superhero setting. So who knows what kind of characters are going to come together and who knows what they're going to do, and it needs to be open to that. So for me, approaching this sandbox, my sandbox is not going to be just completely open. It's going to have, you know, here's the cool castle, and here's the cool this, and here's the cool that, and here's things, and now there's stuff out there that populates the world, and they're doing stuff. You just have to decide. So kind of the same approach. A mixture of, you can go anywhere and do anything, but while you're at it, these core conflicts are happening, and these things are going to be going on, so you have to decide if you're going to deal with them or not. And I think a good mix really is a mature and effective way to go. Excellent. The, uh, how important... Okay, here's an observation of mine, and agree or disagree. Most popular RPGs, uh, tabletop RPGs, on the market now have a profound either fantastical or supernatural element to them. There are very few straight-up realistic um, even reenactment style RPGs. I mean, like, real world is not what most people want to do when they sit down to play. And I think my opinion is this might be a legacy of D&D where the hobby screw out of fantasy, and now there are plenty of different ways of doing that. But how important do you think, do you agree or disagree, and how important do you think either supernatural, magic, superpowers, weirdness, fantasy is to an RPG world that you build? You're going to have a hard time selling a game that's based on pure realism, and that's been proven time and time again. Nobody really wants to play the real world. We live in it. Um, you know, we are inspired by the action-adventure movies and television, you know, and, and let's look at what's on, right? I mean, superhero movies and television and uh, the, the supernatural-driven stuff, that's all extremely popular. I mean... But there are other nerd hobbies that do go realism. Like the miniatures guys. I mean, most of it's historical. Or, right. you know, maybe Afghanistan and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, people... There is some... Um, now, do you, are you counting science fiction here? Like, extreme, extreme tech is also yes, being... Yes, extreme a, tech, absolutely. All right, well, yeah. I mean, either, if it's not historical, where you're playing Romans or Romans, not Romans who are fighting against werewolves, or, you know, your Civil War, uh, those don't seem to be on, on, the, on the, the playing field. But, for instance, like, look at the Pinnacle. Pinnacle's publications often do take historical settings... But and flip them on their head. And twist them. The big twist is fantasy, weirdness, magic, sci-fi. Mostly horror. Yeah. <laughs> yes, true. Mostly it's horror, unless you look at uh, Last Parsec. I, I, I think it kind of speaks for itself. I think people would prefer, with their entertainment, uh, to, to go someplace else. And, I mean, granted, with television, things like that, you know, we can watch a drama. It's a drama about other people, and, you know, it's well-acted and whatever. But we're not, you know, for gaming, you know, we're... We're not as driven to just engage in interpersonal drama. I mean, Fiasco is an interesting game because yeah. you can totally go there with a... But even then, if we're not talking about supernatural and odd uh, occurrences, then we're talking about really odd people. Some way or another, people want to twist the, the role-playing game in some direction where there's something they're not. You know, that is the whole point. So if you don't give them... Uh, some element external to their character or to play with, you know, that, that is supernatural or, or science fiction or whatever, they'll find some other way to... Because nobody just wants to, you know, let's just be a bunch of friends sitting around drinking coffee and angsting over our jobs. We do that. I mean, that's life. So I don't see us really want to play that. I mean, 
I could see, okay, I'm going to challenge you to make a game that's about real. I just don't know, right? You know, I'm, I'm, if nothing else, if I were to do a modern day, and I actually have a setting that's sitting way, way, way back in the background called the Excalibur Directive. And it is a modern, slightly postmodern setting um, that would be about super, you know, well, I say super, but basically, you know, highly trained agents of different types, of, of different um, uh, specializations and what have you. And, uh, you know, sort of like, not quite G.I. Joe, that, that is colorful G.I. Joe, but like James Bond meets G.I. Joe-ish kind of stuff. And there's like the, the whole planning, a, a mission thing, and there's like mechanics I want to come up with for planning missions and all that. But even then, even then, there's going to be the outlandish, I can do things that no real person probably could do, you know, and be able to do the, these super agent kind of things. Because that, being able to play it out as a movie action adventure hero, being able to do John McClane type stuff or James Bond type stuff, is still quite quote unquote supernatural or preternatural compared to what it really what a real firefight's like. Nobody wants to be in a real firefight. I don't know many people who want to game in a real firefight. That's just the way I see it. First of all, I'm going to agree uh, with what your initial premise. Uh, second of all, I'm going to say I don't think that the level of weirdness again that's supernatural or however I don't think that's absolutely the most important thing. It certainly is. Uh, it, it's ancillary, but I think the the twist is what's really really cool about it. Because if if somebody came to me with a really cool twist on a game set in the real world, I'd be all about it. There's some games out there that have twists that are so compelling it almost forces you to try it. Uh, Necessary Evil has this fantastic twist on superheroes that makes me like, oh my god, I want to play Necessary Evil so bad. Let me give you an example. When I was in uh, college, at the University of Wyoming, there was this guy's game that had a waiting list a mile long. Okay. And when I asked what the game was, you know, what, what are you guys playing? Oh, we're, we're basically playing spies. And I'm like, why has he got a list this long for spies? And then somebody sat me down and goes, no, you don't understand. You're all playing the top echelon of espionage agents and working for an organization called the, uh, the Delta Initiative. And the thing about the Delta Initiative is they're struggling to save the world from a group of uh, genetically enhanced overlords trying to take it over, led by a man named Khan. Nice. And I was like, oh my god, it's Star Trek 2! It's it's the prequel to, oh my god, that's Khan! And that was the hook that, that nailed me. I'm like, I've got to play this, right? So if you have a compelling twist on something, I, it doesn't matter how fantastical it is. It can be really, really fun. I And, and in the right hands, I imagine um, someone like Robin Laws could probably write a really interesting game about playing normal people in the real world who just have, you know, Maybe they win the lottery. Maybe that's the twist. It's yourself, but you win the lottery. Now what do you do? I bet they could probably come up with something really interesting on that. There are very, very skilled game master or game designers out there who could probably make that. But again, I don't know what the mass appeal on that would be. It would probably be highly lauded. Sure. There would be a group of people who thought that was amazing, but I, I don't know mass market-wise. Well, well, the closest thing to mass market we have. Well, sometimes you just make a game to make a game because you really yeah. want to make it. And sometimes that has appeal, sometimes it doesn't. Um, there's a game I'm working on that's going to be coming out next year called uh, Endless that I just want to make. I don't really care if it's I was going to mention that. <laughs> yeah, I don't care if it's super popular. I just want to make it. So I mean, I, there's, there's probably people I like me out there. Play it. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, that kind of brings to mind uh, what was it? Dogs in the Vineyard. Yeah. I mean, if you if you told someone you're playing Mormon Jedi, basically, you know, <laughs> there you are, religious fundamentalists laying down the fundamentalist smackdown on your your. Uh, your underlings in your area in Deseret. A lot of people go, what? But it's, it, it, it is. It's, it's a fantastic little twist on, on history. And, and, they, and, they, you know, and the mechanics of the game kind of add to that, too. So on that, on the mechanics, the, um, uh, let's see. Um, how important is it to bring new 
except for Savage Worlds, new setting-specific edges or hindrances to your worlds, and or larger question, um, what setting-specific mechanics are you the most proud of in, in your games? Wow. I do believe it ends up becoming important. I mean, it's a real balance, too. I mean, it's tricky, because you don't want to reinvent the wheel. Right, you don't want to be inventing stuff just to be inventing it, and therefore bogging the system down with additional mechanics it doesn't need. But we have discovered, and again, we're talking specific Savage Worlds here. Um, I, I, well, I, I feel this has been true for a lot of games, but uh, it's certainly true for Savage Worlds because Savage Worlds is a clean and lean system that handles a lot of stuff core very, very well. But each setting benefits from edges that reinforce the, the tropes and the feel and the magic and the spirit of that setting. I mean, the Weird War one, or the, the Weird War series, each of those ends up with edges that are specifically about serving in the military or serving with a military, you know, influenced organization uh, or other things that are historical, right? And so that just further reinforces and enhances the feel of playing in that historical thing. I mean, uh, you know, Weird Wars Rome, right? You know, you played a, a Weird Wars Roman in that uh, active play that we did. Uh, and yes, just having some of those aspects that made him feel like I'm from this era of Rome. And uh, I, I do feel that's important. I mean, obviously, I thought that was important with Shintar, too. Special ways of doing the races, you know, special rules for, for all of that kind of stuff. And of course, going back to Savage Rifts, oh, wow, did we have to do a lot of stuff with that, because to get that world to present in a way that we knew fans of that setting were going to hope to experience it, that required us going in deep and, uh, and coming up with those ways to, to really, really bring those out. And uh, you talk about the mechanic we're most proud of. I mean, it's, it's, it's... And we've talked about this over and over again, so I feel like I'm cheating by getting a call upon it again, but the, the day that Ross and I sat in this very room and we're talking... And, and it's like, we need to do something. Ross was the, you know, the, the one that initially said, we need to do something that makes that juicer mechanic, or that, well, that juicer aspect of dying soon because you got all this power. Some, it needs to be something important. How are we going to reflect that? And we've gone, you know, we went round and round and round, and we got you know, John Wick and Shane and all these other guys involved, and we down to Phoenix. And um, it was just, uh, that is a mechanic we're incredibly proud of. It is a mechanic that ever since people found out about it, they've just gone nuts. You know, we told uh, Kevin about it. He went nuts about it. I mean, he was so excited about it. He sat down with the Atlas representative, or not Atlas, uh, Alliance representatives at Gen Con with me. He said, you've got to tell them about this. So we knew we had a hit in terms of just that one idea on our hands. Uh, and that is a thing that it mechanically reinforces a specific aspect of that character in the world that he lives in that, you know, otherwise you just, it's oh, it's nice, it's in the background. But in John's credit, John with credit, he was like, if it doesn't have a game mechanic, if it doesn't have a mechanic that enforces the gameplay aspect of it, it's not real. It doesn't really matter. It, you can you can make it matter to your character individually, but universally it doesn't have meaning. Um, you, you go back to Legend of the Five Ring. It was a game about honor. So you had to have an honor mechanic if you really wanted to make that matter to the players and, and to their gameplay experience. So if it's important to the world, if it's important to expressing an aspect of the world uh, that otherwise could be readily ignored and shouldn't be, then yes, there should be some sort of a setting rule or a, a edge or something that brings that out to the fore and gets the player a chance to engage with it and play with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, John Wick is a celebrated designer for a lot of reasons, and while I don't agree with him on everything, like one thing that I've, I think is very profound that I learned from him was the idea that take that core nugget, what is my game about, and then weave that as much as possible through not only the mechanics but also like even the terminology about how you refer to things 
and if, it, it will just overall tighten up and strengthen your core concept of that game, where people come away from that game uh, with the experience that you wanted to give them. So I think Sean nails it when he says, you know, you, you do you, you add some mechanics where where necessary and where it doesn't, you know, uh, take away from the core, but you do it in such a way that it reinforces what the game is about, and that is, I think, the best way to do it with, with regards to world building. Nice. The um, how have you handled the role of religion and faith in your settings, especially mm-hmm. where they overlap, uh, overlap with real world history? Okay. <laughs> Now, I was just about to say, you know, that you were asking about the mechanic that I love the most that I put in. in, in oh yeah, go go back if you need to. Yeah. Well, I, it, it actually leads into the. So in Accursed, we introduced the the, the game mechanic of the uh, the the acceptance or denial of your curse. Your curse made you a monster, so you could choose whether you wanted to embrace that curse and become more monstrous, which gave you more more like raw power, but also in, in, enhance the weaknesses of the monster, like if you were a werewolf, you became more vulnerable to silver and more ruled by your instincts. Um, or you could deny it and, and uh, chain, you know, kind of get back some of your humanity, which had its own benefits as well. So it was an interesting struggle that was about the core of what the game was about, so that curse. Now, um, one of the big impacts, uh, one of the big uh, sorry, aspects of Accursed as a setting is the way it deals with faith. Um, there is a religion in Accursed called the Enochian faith, which is very, very strongly based on uh, Franciscan uh, monks and, and the Catholic Church. Um, but very specifically, what I wanted to do in, in Accursed was create the idea of a faith that is very broad, very universal, but has absolutely zero supernatural elements to it. It is a faith because because it's faith. There is no uh, there's no miracles, there's no guys walking around healing people with it. The people believe in it because they, they either have that faith or they don't. And I thought that was an interesting way to approach it in my game where I'm with Accursed, where it, the idea of faith is very personal to people because there is literal supernatural power out there. It's, that's witchcraft, right? And, uh, you know, there's obviously people who question uh, what faith is about in the face of that if faith itself is not supernatural. Faith is instead very personal and has to do with your beliefs. So that's the way I approach it with Accursed. Of course, the easy way out and most of us take it, I totally did myself, you know, is to create, you know, imaginary religions that do not intersect with anyone's true belief system and, you know, just make it endemic to the world. Shantar obviously is that. You know, the Church of Light can easily be looked at as, you know, well, I, that's what the Catholic Church would be like if it, was, if it was in this world, but not really. I mean, there's trappings and, I, you know, stained glass windows and wonderful cathedrals and angelic beings, yes, but it's a variation on that and intentionally so because I wanted to have fun with that without necessarily touching on other, other sensitivities. And whereas I often did make the joke in person that the the, the counterpart to them, the, the Church of Archanon, was essentially the Catholic, the, 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 the ancient worst possible times of the Catholic Church meets the Nazi party, you know, I would never want to say, well, that means because I think all Catholics are Nazis, and that's a really horrible thing that you never want to say, and I don't believe that. I was just saying that during the Inquisition, when the bad people were in charge, and you know, mix that with when the Nazis were in charge of Germany, that's what the Church of Archanon is. But it's still, and that was as close as I was willing to get, because people's actual real-world faith is a thing you don't want to mess with, and rightfully so. I mean, I, I, yes, comedians say question everything, challenge everything, you know, be willing to insult, to, to challenge thinking, and that's a different thing. That's a sociological conversation. But as a game designer, um, I am interested in entertaining. I'm interested in presenting stuff for people to have fun with. 
And you know, that's that's where I'm. I'm an action adventure guy, right? I mean, I respect designers who who want to go a different direction and really challenge people to think about their philosophies, their faiths, and all that kind of stuff. You know, don't, disc- don't discount that. But that's not where I tend to go. You know, with riffs, uh, you know, it's a real world. It's post post apocalyptic, and you know, hundreds, possibly thousands of years from any time that we can imagine. Um, but even so, the real world is there. Uh, so. Sh- but, in this case, we leave it for each player to decide, and each GM to decide for themselves where they want to go with it. So the Mystic, for example, we decided to recast the Mystic as kind of a priestly, you know, following enlightenment one way or another, either through you know an actual faith system, or maybe I just believe in, in nature, or the light of the universe, or whatever, you get to decide for yourself. And I think that's oftentimes the best way to go with that is, is you know, yes, there's power to be had. Yes, there are miracles to channel. You can decide if that is a manifestation of your faith, in, in the Christian way, or in the Muslim way, or in any other way, or if it comes from something else, and that is entirely a personal choice, which, at the end of the day, I think faith is. Excellent. And grow, so growing that question is a little bit larger. I think the role-playing hobby is reaching new heights of awareness and, and um, acceptance in mainstream culture, and I think with that, um, we're going to rub up against certain sensitivities and... Yeah. Um, concepts like cultural appropriation and how does a game designer wow there's we've been dealing with that yeah how does a game designer today in in the modern reality deal with borrowing from reality borrowing from other cultures um, Mm -hmm. and these certain sensitivities people have justified or not uh, over that I mean you know is it enough to file the serial numbers off for instance, like I uh, seven C's, very much historical Europe with the serial numbers filed off. Right. Is that enough? Or if we're doing uh, Legend of Five Rings, you know, can a white author publish that today? Uh, how much? How different does it have to be? Do you have to? You know, it's an interesting kind of, and I don't know if that's no. really a simple answer. But how do you there, tackle that? What are, what are your strategies? There is no simple answer to that. But I will say this: I don't care what your color skin is or what your ethnicity is. Um, if you do the research and you are respectful. Then you can do it. If you if you're really going to touch on a real world culture, a real world faith, even if you're going to do a fantasy version of it or whatever, as long as you're respectful and you do your research and you make sure that you are talking to people who are of that faith or are of that culture and you are getting good information, if you're willing to do that work, then I don't care who you are. You know, you're doing it right. Now we have this problem. I'll go ahead and give you as a Savage Cast exclusive. We are facing questions of this as we look to the West as we start looking at what other books we, we, we might do. I mean, no commitments here, right? I'm talking about Savage Riffs. Savage Riffs, yeah. You know, the, the, you know there's a whole thing from, from back then where they, you know, the Indians you know, had a really cool and, frankly, epic and heroic kind of storyline. But we are going to have to. I mean, we're, we're committed to, to being as, as sensitive, if you don't mind the word, uh, and aware as possible so that we avoid culture appropriation, that we avoid, you know, magic... Magic Indian syndrome, or whatever you want to call it, uh, and actually treat it with respect, and and find a way to present it in 2016 that is both respectful to the original source material it was written, but at the same time is aware of the way things are today and the way they should be. Uh, you you know me, I'm 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 big on trying to be sensitive to other people's feelings about this kind of stuff. I want everyone to feel included and not feel like they've been disrespected. So that's a real challenge. That is something that I will be and Ross, I'm sure, and and we, we will be spending a lot of time wrestling with that to make sure that we do it appropriately. And that's the same thing for anything else, right? Any other culture, any other uh, aspect of people's actual real-world experiences, 
you want to treat it with respect. You you want to elevate it without, you know, uh, boiling it down to overly simplistic, you know, metaphors. So, I mean, that's let's look what happened with uh, Numenera, right? Um, yeah. You know, uh, with, with Monty Cook, they, they you know, in, in just purely innocent and and well-intentioned, well-meaning. Uh, fashion, and it was either, I think it actually was The Stranger or Numenera. It was one of the cipher games, but basically they had that very thing with the Native American cultural appropriation, and people, appropriation, people came at them. Now, they handled it very well. Right? They came back and said, hey, we recognize that this was a mistake, and we want to go back and fix it, and we want to talk to you, say, engaged. And I believe and, they engaged a Native American yes. writer to, yeah. to work on it. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, since we are trying to become better as a human, as a species, and I believe in that, I, I like the fact that here in the 21st century, we as a species are trying overall to, to be better. Yeah, that means taking the right approach with our media, and as a very tiny portion of the media, you know, I, I want to be a part of that. We had a, a panel on this at ChupacabraCon. It was diversity in gaming. Corinne was there. Yep. And uh, Brian Engard was handed this question, and he had a great answer for it, which I'm going to paraphrase here, and I hope, if anybody's listening that knows Brian, I hope he doesn't you know, hate me for this, because I'm probably mangling it, but basically what Brian said was, don't be lazy. That's the simple answer. Don't be lazy. Damn Do your research. Um, you know, if there is a real-world culture that you want to highlight in your game, you know, and add some fantastical elements to, you know, just be aware of what the stereotypes are. Talk to people from that culture. Show them your work. Get them to uh, get them involved and see you know what they think. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, there's a lot of people in our industry uh, who are all mono. We have a very strong monoculture basically uh, in, amongst the creators. Um, for example, myself, I am you know I'm basically a white guy, and I'm asked a lot to write things about uh, Asian uh, places like Japan in the future and things like that. So uh, I will do my research. I will do. Uh, I will, I will talk to people of Japanese descent, see what they think about it. You know, before I publish it, I will not be lazy about it. And that's, that's the, I think, the, the simple answer, which and there really isn't one, but that's the closest we can come to. And we have been. We, as, a, as an industry in the past, right. we've been lazy. We're like, well, let's just grab the cool stuff that we like from online or, you know, or TV or whatever right. and run with it. You know, Corinne is a perfect example here. She, you know, has studied Norse faith as, as a religion, not just a mythology, Although she certainly studied it from all of those aspects. So she encounters depictions of Thor and, and Norse aspects, for example, you know, the, the Marvel movies. And she has to, she, I always see her just kind of twitching a little bit every time she encounters these very, very variant ideas. Now she's, you know, she's a nurse. She's like, okay, that's just an alternate version. But it's, it's important to note that there are people who believe other things, right? Then not everybody's Christian. Not everybody's, you know, Buddhist or Muslim. People believe lots of different things. And so we go to that well and we start drawing from it. You know, we can take the cheap and lazy, as Russ says, way out and just grab the, the comic, you know, the Marvel Comics version of Asgard. But again, that's, not only is it pretty much ripping off something that's not correct in the first place, it's also just flat out lazy and you could do more and you could do better, which, you know, wherever you want to go with it. Well, I think uh, one example I want to point out is Sean Bircher has a great setting, uh, a game he's coming out with called The King's Dead for Savage Worlds. It's really, really, really great. And he's looking at, like, a Victorian England um, time, type, er, type era, right? And he was, not, he was really, he had this question he was struggling with, like, whether or not to talk about slavery in Europe. And uh, eventually he went in and you know, spoke with some, some people uh, of African-American descent and wanted to talk to them about you know, how do you guys think you know I should deal with this? And the, the response he got back was, you know, be true. If that was a thing that happened, bring it out. Just don't 
you know, make make it clear that this was not right, but bring it up. You know, it's a part of that world, and he did. And I think the King's Dead is stronger for that because he did he did his he put the time in and, and did his research. There's a, a variant approach to that. It's the way Shane decided to approach it with Deadlands. Like, okay, you know, here's a sidebar basically, and it's like if you want to deal with slavery, you want to deal with racism, you want to deal with misogyny, or you know, the fact that women were that's up to you. And it's between you and your group. You know, but we're going to present this as a world in which things have changed somewhat, and so being of, a, of non-white descent or being a woman or whatever does not restrict you, and that's the choice that we make. But being honest about that choice, right? Yeah. That's whatever you're going to do, and this goes to the, go, this is the bigger picture about world building. Come out front and say it. I mean, that, there's that is the best possible approach you can do. One of the you talk about things I'm proud of. The GM or what became known as the liner notes in the Shantar books. It used to be called the GM to GM section, and we changed it to liner notes. But the idea basically being, here's me, me, the writer and designer, talking to you and saying, this is why I did this. You know, this is where I'm going with this. And being transparent and saying, this is why this is set up this way. And if you want to change it, this is, you know, this is how you should change it or whatever. But just coming out front and saying, you know, we are not going to deal with real world religions in this game. If you choose to understand, you know, these are the consequences potentially, make sure that your players are comfortable with it. Just get it out there. That's the open honesty and not being lazy. Those are both really good for everything you want to approach. Yeah, you mentioned, Ross, there was, I had to cut you off a little bit. There was a game, and, and Sean said he wanted you to mention it. Tell us some more about... Oh, <laughs> The Endless? Yes. Uh, well, okay, I'm not going to get too far into that because it's still very rough. It's in its early stages, but uh, The Endless is a game I'm working on that's it's going to be its own system, uh, and it's going to be a game about playing Immortals. Um, kind of like, it's taking a lot of inspiration from Highlander. It's taking a lot of inspiration from shows like Supernatural. Um, but the basic premise is, for Endless, is that you will be playing characters who have lived centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And how, you know, it, it's about that experience of being immortal. How do you deal with the ages that you've, you've lived? How do you deal with all the loves that you've lost, all the mistakes you've made? And how do you still be a hero under those circumstances what were the relationships like between you and the other immortals in other time periods, and how does that relate to how you are now? And uh, he's I got think, some really brilliant ideas about that, and I'm not going to let him give them away. Yeah, but that's, he's I, got I, some. I say. He's got some really, really brilliant ideas about this. I mean, this is one of the things I am most excited about Evil Beagle Publishing, quite frankly. I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it. Yeah, yeah leave him hungry. So one more question <laughs> for both of you guys, and you can pick which one of these. Either uh, a question I haven't asked, you'd like to answer. How'd you get into gaming? Your first RPG experience? Your favorite homebrew setting? Memorable character campaign or gaming experience? Something that reveals uh, something about your gaming history uh, or even infancy that people don't know about yet? Uh, wow. Uh, I'm struggling. You got one? Whew. Um, something that people don't know about yet. Um, I played a lot of elves. When I started playing, like, every single <laughs> oh character. no, the horror, the every, horror! Every single character I made for D anD D when I first started playing was elves, and uh, I I started reading Dragonlance, and then it was all Kender. So um, I was one of those guys when I was a kid. You know, we're talking junior high, but every time I would make a character, it would be an elf, and then for a while it was Kender, and then people kind of beat that out of me. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's something people didn't know about me. I won't play evil, ever. From the very first Dungeons & Dragons character I ever created and got to play in the in the 70s to my... I'm 50 years old today in 2016. I have never, ever played an evil character. I've never played it. And I don't mean... I mean, whether the game had an alignment or not, uh, whatever that was, my, my character's moral compass has always been heroic at some level. And 
I've, I've had people, you know, who know me wise, like, you know, why don't you branch out? It's like, I branch out in all kinds of different directions. I just, to me, every time I am honored, and believe me when I say, it is an honor every single time I get to sit down at a table as a player. Because, you know, I'm one of the guys who, you know, who does a lot of game mastering, you know, so I, I always cherish that opportunity to play. And because I cherish the opportunity to play, I'm going to play what makes me happy. And what makes me happy is to be somebody who has the ability to make the world a better place. Even if it's just the imaginary world that I'm inhabiting at that time. You know, I want to be the hero. I'm going to do the cool heroic things. This is one of the reasons I've just recently fallen in love with Feng Shui 2. Woo! Oh my god, that game was pretty much built for me and Robin Lodge, a magnificent bastard. I don't know why it took me so long to play this game, but I'm really into Feng Shui, and I, I love playing superheroes. But it doesn't matter what it is. Um, uh, I'm... <laughs> So there's a, a subset of people who know me that, that, that know the famous stories of my problems with Shadowrun, which every time I try to play Shadowrun, I try to play a hero, and nobody else wants to, and that always gets me killed or just miserable. And uh, that's that's it. But uh, there's a thing that if you didn't know, now you do. Sean, I don't want to play horror, and it's going to be it would take everything in the world to get me to play a horror game. Um, but I, 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 even if I do play a horror game. I won't play a villain. I won't play a bad guy. I won't play. I won't play an anti-hero either. I will play a heroic good guy every single time. That's who I am. That's who I want to be. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and letting us uh, play in your minds and in the world you guys build. I appreciate it, Ross, Sean, and Corinne over there. Thank you so much. The, uh, we will uh, be in your world soon, playing uh, rolling dice and experience what you guys have to give us. But uh, thank you again for the insight and uh, catch you guys later, Savage Cast. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us on. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Savage Cast Episode 8, World Building with Ross and Sean. You can find our show on iTunes. Go there, leave us a review. We're on G+. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Come out, find us, share with us. If you have questions, show ideas, get them to us at uproar at savagecast.com. And once again, thank you for listening, and hail savages. Oh, okay.